Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcasts from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. On the docket today, we are examining part two of the series, Unraveled Experts on Trial. If you haven't listened to part one yet, give that episode a listen first. And now let's discuss the final four episodes of Unraveled Season 3, Experts on Trial. Here's a synopsis from the show page. Unraveled Experts on Trial investigates an alarming problem within the American criminal justice process, the business of forensic experts. It is a crisis in the courts that is decades in the making. Citing several cases as examples, Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen expose serious flaws with forensic expert testimony, which routinely leads to tragedy and injustice within the U.S. court system. To take your experience of today's show to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. You will see photos of the wrongfully convicted, the experts who put them there, and photos of crime scene evidence. Last week we talked all about the flaws of blood pattern evidence, and this week we are about to dismantle some other forensic disciplines. So here we go. Let's get even more unraveled and sink our teeth into the demented world of phony bite mark evidence. Episode 4, titled Take My Word For It, begins with the case of Bill Richards. We hop back to the year 1993 to San Bernardino Valley, California. Bill returns home after a long day at work to discover his wife Pamela's dead body. It was a brutal scene. She had been beaten and bludgeoned with a paving stone and then manually strangled. 
And to make matters worse, the investigation was a mess from the jump. After Bill called 911 several times, police did not arrive on the scene until hours later, around 3.15 a.m. And even then, they didn't secure the scene or begin their investigation until well after the sun came up. In the interim, dogs had been rummaging around Pamela's body. Police left random footprints and fingerprints all over the place, and crucial time-sensitive evidence was not properly collected or documented. It sounded like a total free-for-all. I'm talking worse than the electronics department at the Walmart on Black Friday kind of free-for-all. Dude, remember when that chick pepper sprayed everyone to get an Xbox? America! The first rule about Black Friday is, there are no rules, just great deals. Huh. What were we talking about again? Oh right, senseless killing. Okay, so even though neighbors told investigators they witnessed Bill and Pamela walking in the neighborhood earlier that day holding hands, and there had been no signs of any trouble in their marriage, and he was in a typical pleasant mood at work all day, the cops still zeroed in on Bill as their prime suspect. He complied with all police questionings, hoping they would quickly rule him out as a suspect and move on to find his wife Pamela's real killer. But this was not the case. In fact, it was Bill who inadvertently did the most damage trying to help solve the case that gave prosecutors the most ammunition against him. At Pamela's funeral, when Bill was standing next to her casket saying his final goodbyes, he noticed what appeared to be a bite mark on her hand. Bill pointed out this missed piece of potential evidence to investigators in hopes to find her killer. But instead, investigators found a bite mark expert who, quote, matched the indentations on Pamela's body to Bill's mouth. They found a fellow named Dr. Norman Sperber, a dentist and forensic odontologist. He lined up an imprint of Bill's teeth to a sized image of the bite mark left on Pamela. And that was it, y'all. The prosecution had no other direct evidence, no time of death timeline, no fingerprinting, no DNA collection, nothing against Bill except the bite mark evidence. In his first trial, he was convicted to 25 years. And while serving his sentence, Bill gets connected to the California Innocence Project. They collect new evidence. They re-interview witnesses, and neighbors had seen a suspicious vehicle in the neighborhood being driven by a blonde man the day Pamela was murdered. Oh, and look, further testing found blonde hairs at the crime scene and unknown male DNA under Pamela's fingernails and on the murder weapon. Oh, and also, forensic odontologist Dr. Norman Sperber recanted his original testimony. In spite of all this, Bill's conviction is not overturned, at least not right away. He has to undergo two more trials, and this case demonstrates the monumental task it takes to overturn a wrongful conviction in the U.S. At the time in California, 
even though an expert recanted, that had no bearing on overturning a conviction. Dr. Sperber's testimony from the first trial stood. Bill Richards' case gets pushed up to the California Supreme Court, and after another seven years of appeals, he is finally exonerated and released. In total, Bill Richards spent over 23 years in prison, and now he says he's a shell of himself, currently battling late-stage cancer that, of course, was not properly being treated while he was in custody. His wife's killer has never been found, and there is no active investigation into her murder. Are we having fun yet? You guys, I don't even know how to make this funny. This case is where comedy goes to die. No, no, even worse. This is where comedy goes and gets wrongfully convicted based on the erroneous metric of an applausometer. Ugh, clapping, really? What an inaccurate judge of quality. You know, not everyone reacts to comedy the same way, guys. A lot of times, my friends and family show their enjoyment of my comedic performances by sitting in the corner and gently weeping. And I should get points for that too. And lucky for me, it looks like evidentiary standards and practices are getting their own performance review. In 2009, the National Academy of Sciences called for re-examination of nearly all forensic sciences used in the American court system. Bite mark evidence was near the top of their list as an example of bunk forensic science. Ooh, look, another job opening. Let's have a think about what these laid off bite mark experts can do instead. Hmm. Oh my gosh, you guys, I have the most adorable idea ever. Doggy chew toy curators. Let's have these former forensic dental experts study the teeth of our doggos and specially curate the perfect chew toy for them based on jaw size and unique canine dental patterns. Yeah, yeah, what do you say, my dogs? By a round of applause, how do you feel? Wowza, 10 out of 10 on the applause-o-meter, and those things are never wrong. Getting back to the National Academy of Sciences, they basically suggest only going as far as identifying a bite mark to be human and then swabbing it for DNA. That's it. Anything beyond that is past the scope of what should be deemed scientifically accurate. However, there are still judges and lawyers allowing this kind of bunk bite mark pattern evidence to be presented at trial. You think that bites? There's one so-called forensic science that's ranked slightly higher on the National Academy of Sciences naughty list. That brings us to the story of Joanne Parks. On the evening of April 9th, 1989, Joanne put her three children to bed and then fell asleep. Around midnight, she woke up to screaming and noticed her whole house was in flames. She rushes to try to save her children but can't get past the fire. And then she runs to a neighbor's house to call 911. But tragically, all three of her children perished. The initial investigation pointed to an accident. But after further analysis, investigators accused Joanne Parks of arson. 
And at her trial, a fire expert claimed the blaze was started by human origin rather than by an electrical source. Another expert for the prosecution testified that based on the fire patterns, Joanne must have started two fires, one in the living room and another starting in the children's bedroom. The prosecution's case was further bolstered by the fact that her youngest son died in his closet that appeared to be blocked by a laundry hamper. Joanne was convicted of arson and triple homicide. She was up for the death penalty, but sentenced to life in prison. While serving time, Joanne studied everything she could to help prove her innocence. And at the same time, there was a huge shift happening in arson investigation thanks to a man named John Linetti. In his early years as an investigator, John noticed a lot of inconsistencies in arson investigation. There was no standard protocol. A lot of times it was just one member of the fire department with a hunch passing down his opinions to the next guy in line. And John Linetti believed a shockingly high number of cases being ruled arson were actually accidents. He decided to test his theories. John Linetti started demonstrating the phenomenon of flashover to his colleagues. Basically, when a fire starts, a combustible surface can reach a certain temperature and then it will spontaneously ignite. And before this revelation, previous arson investigation often attributed flashover with points of fire origin. So this discovery immediately debunked many previous fires ruled to be arson. And then in the 1990s, there was a wildfire that burned nearly 100 houses in Northern California. John Linetti took a crew of fire investigators there to theoretically look for signs of arson based on the current metrics. They set out to look at 100 houses, but they stopped after house number 50 because at that point, 49 of the houses were positive for signs of arson under their current standards, even though they had been burned by a naturally caused wildfire. In 2011, John Linetti sat on a panel to take a second look at the Joanne Parks case. He was able to disprove the two-point origin arson theory and establish proof that this was a fire caused by an appliance malfunction. Joanne was released from prison after having served 29 years. Thanks, John. I'll take it from here. Looks like the field of arson investigation is about to get downsized. But have no fear. I have a new job opportunity perfect for fire experts. Birthday candle blow coaches. Here's my pitch. Have you ever had a birthday party where everything was going great until they light the candles on your cake and you get the yips and biff the big blow? Oh gosh, only two candles? How embarrassing! Then you have to wait an entire year before you get your chance at another blow? And to make matters worse, the candle count increases every year, so your anxiety is through the roof dreading the embarrassment of another incomplete candle blow. 
Don't let this be you. Instead, have all your wishes come true and call your local birthday candle blow coach. These flame experts will help you perfect the ideal candle placement so you can get them all out in one blow. Make your next birthday fire with the help of a birthday candle blow coach. And now, back to our completely dark and depressing program. There is a conservative estimate that nearly 2.5% of all inmates currently serving in the U.S. are innocent. Maybe that doesn't seem too high of a percentage, but it does translate to roughly 35,000 people. And what's even more devastating is that 75% of women whose convictions have been overturned, like the Joanna Parks case, a crime never even occurred in the first place. Yeah, blood spatter, bite marks, arson, tire marks, dog handler evidence, fingerprints, handwriting, shoe prints, ballistics. Even if there is real evidence collected at the scene of a crime, it's being interpreted and analyzed by real humans. And a lot of these real humans are professionals, good intentioned people doing their jobs exactly how they were trained. But there is still so much room for human error. Yeah, this might be one of the only times I ever wanted the robots to take over. The weight and magnitude of all this is hard to hear, but in the end, it needs to be common knowledge. Some of you listening might be called in for jury duty, and thanks to this reporting from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen, you will be more informed on the human fallibility side of forensic trace evidence. Heck, you might even be more informed on the subject than the judges and lawyers who still allow this kind of junk science to be presented in court. That is crazy to me. I'm not that smart, y'all. And now even I have more knowledge on this stuff than some of the judges presiding over criminal cases. This should be terrifying to everyone, dude, because I still lay in bed at night confused over the continuity of old Saved by the Bell episodes. Oh, wait, uh, who's Tori? And where did Kelly and Jesse go? Didn't they already graduate? Oh, I'm so dumb. Okay, so we're all in agreement that the issue of flawed expert testimony should not continue on. So how do we put a stop to this? Well, in the final episode of Unraveled Experts on Trial titled The Gears of the System, we hear from scientists, attorney, and judges who offer some radical ideas to end the cycle. The consensus gist of it is that we need standardized tests that demonstrate accuracy. We need to get rid of qualified immunity for judges, lawyers, experts, and police officers. And perhaps they should even uh, face harsher penalties for perjury. There is also talk that certain forms of forensics should no longer be allowed into evidence. And cases where people were convicted solely on faulty forensics need a second look. My favorite submissions to the suggestion box come from behavioral scientist Jay Kohler. He wants to see tests designed to show consumers how good a potential form of evidence is, what's the baseline accuracy rate and the error rate. Following protocol and demonstrating an expert can simply conduct an analysis is not good enough. Jay Kohler wants experts in these fields to demonstrate accuracy. 
How well can an expert find matches and non-matches in a highly controlled situation where they don't even know they're being tested? I love this because if an expert is aware they're being tested, they are more likely to be conservative in their assessment, marking inconclusive on the tougher calls. But on the other hand, if they don't know they're being tested, you get a more accurate view of how they would analyze evidence in a real life case. Critics say these kinds of tests are expensive to implement and would be a burden on the court. Yeah, well, so is overloading court dockets, imprisoning the innocent, and compensating those who have been wrongfully convicted. I am on team best evidence all the way. Someone get Jerry Maguire on the phone and show me the data. Critics also say, what about precedent? All these people are serving time for convictions based on debunked forensic data. You can't just let them out. That argument is basically asking for wrongful convictions to be grandfathered in on irrationality. We also used to uh, try and convict women for being witches. Should that precedent still stand? I hope to gosh not, because I just took a DNA test, and it turns out I'm 100% that witch. Hey, the DNA don't lie, y'all. Overall, the reporting on Unraveled Season 3 Experts on Trial is a great first step to course correct. But the wheels of justice are continuing to move incredibly slow. I really hope things get better. But if they continue to get worse, I may just have to throw my hat into the ring and capitalize on a potentially lucrative career of sham science. So, after taking a 40-hour course, I am now qualified as a forensic music analyst. Here's how it works. When there are two possible suspects who may have committed a crime, the prosecution calls me in to examine the last three artists the potential perp listened to. Hmm, suspect number one had the B-52s, Luther Vandross, and Gloria Estefan in their recently played list. Yep, clearly innocent of all charges. As for suspect number two, let's see. They were recently jamming out to Creed, Limp Biscuit, and Skrillex. Yo, he did it! Guilty of everything! Ha ha! Another case solved thanks to the foolproof science of forensic music analysis. Some of you wrote in with your theoretical forensic majors, and here are two of my favorites. Forensic eyebrow analysis, which I'm assuming you can determine a person's guilt based on how shifty their eyebrow movement is or how bushy their brows be. Because we all know over-tweezing is a crime in itself. My other favorite submission is emoji pattern analysis. Yo, I feel like this one could actually be legit. You can tell a lot by how someone texts, their response speed, punctuation, and emoji use. And hey, look, it's already a real course currently being offered at DeVry. Yay, smiley face, wink, kiss, salsa dancer. If you have any further ideas for theoretical forensic majors, you can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Tell me your thoughts about this season of Unraveled Experts on Trial and keep an open mind, be kind to fellow true crime feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. 
hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start, I've got some beef with Scamanda. Episode 7 was kind of a nothing burger, and I've had a theory the whole time that the husband and or the pastor were the secret masterminds because they keep dropping hints here and there, but they haven't fully spilled the beans. Give us the good, Scamanda. This is your final warning. And with that, let's start our official ranking. Here are the top three shows currently trending that I think are worth your attention. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Sad Oligarch. Here's a synopsis from the show. What happened to Russia's dead oligarchs? Since January 2022, more than 12 of Russia's wealthiest oligarchs have been found dead. One was poisoned with frog venom. One was found hanged on a handrail with his wife and children killed with an axe. Several fell out of high windows and all of the deaths are suspicious. Russia says most of them were coincidental suicides and that the oligarchs were simply depressed. I don't think so. Sad Oligarch is a modern true crime style investigative podcast series that looks into each Russian oligarch death in 2022 and 2023, unraveling a dark tale of Kremlin corruption and Russian political influence across the world. I've never heard a show quite like this one. It has an indie gonzo feel and I am loving it. And no, it's not just because the host, Jake Hanrahan, has a super hot East Midland British accent. You guys, you gotta give me more credit than that. Do you think I'm that shallow? Seriously though, this is legit excellent reporting and presentation about a pressing topic not being given enough coverage. I am happy with Sad Oligarch. At the number two spot, we have Queen of the Con, season three, titled The Rich Girl. Here's a rundown from the show. Danielle Miller lived a privileged gossip girl lifestyle growing up in Manhattan and attending a fancy private school. Her mom was a rockette and her dad was president of the New England Bar Association. But a cruel twist of fate and vengeance drastically and irrevocably altered her childhood, leading her to a life of scamming starting with her quote Rod Stewart con at the age of 16. She's now got a rap sheet longer than a CVS receipt and is awaiting federal trial for trying to scam nearly a million dollars from Uncle Sam. With now hundreds of victims, will Danielle ever pay the piper? Okay, I'm a little fashionably late to the party on this one. I've been saving it for a road trip binge and it's perfect for that. Pure, unapologetic trash in the best way. The series opens with Danielle being raided by the feds as she is recovering in Miami from a Brazilian butt lift surgery. Do I need to say more? 
And don't be turned off by the cheesy reenactment that opens episode one. The whole podcast is not like that. And even though this show is podcast junk food, you still learn about crazy techniques people can use to steal your identity, take loans out in your name, and ruin your credit. So listening can actually save you money and protect your identity. You're welcome. Bow down to the queen of cons, season three, The Rich Girl. And at the number one spot, we once again have Freeway Phantom. Here's a summary from the show. Between 1971 and 1972, six black girls went missing in the Washington, D.C. area. Their bodies were discarded along D.C. freeways and their killer was never found. The media dubbed him the Freeway Phantom. The show keeps getting better. Each episode builds beautifully off of the previous one. And I'm normally not into serial killer stories, but this one is fascinating me because it actually feels like it's going to be solved any day now. They are talking suspects in the most recent episodes, and there is still evidence from this case that can be tested with new DNA technology and genealogy matching. The work being done here is incredible. So get on the Freeway Phantom. Now for my miss of the week. We have 48 hours. Here's a synopsis. One of television's most popular true crime series adapted for your ears. Follow along with 48 hours every week as award-winning CBS News correspondents investigate the most intriguing crime and justice cases that touch on all areas of the human experience. All right, I think it's time that I come clean about something. I really don't enjoy saying negative critiques about other podcasts. In some weeks, I have a really hard time finding popular shows to qualify for my podcast Q-Trap door. But this week was a layup. Unlike Dateline, who knows exactly who they are, unwind true crime with cheesy wordplay, 48 Hours has a case of missing identity. Similar to Dateline, they basically take the audio from the TV show and repurpose it for podcasts. But 48 Hours really doesn't translate to audio. And in addition to the journalism being phoned in, this show feels like it was run through a filter to remove any personality. My podcast cue trapdoor is too good for this podcast. So instead, I'm going to launch 48 hours into the black void of outer space. See you later. Don't hit a crater. Find out next week if Freeway Phantom will stay in the number one spot as the series wraps up or if another show will swoop in and take its place. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what other show do you think should be launched into outer space. I'll meet you back here to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation, especially Instagram where I am making some dank memes for every episode. 
I also can't stress enough what a huge help it is to grow the show when you take a moment to leave a review and tell your friends about True Crime Feed. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you all heaps for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.